HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. My guests today are Jack Miller, chef owner of Rosella and Bar Miller in East Village, New York, and James Jumapit, executive chef at Bar Miller. They both worked at Chico in Austin, Texas, which is one of the most influential sushi restaurants in America. In 2017, Jack opened Ayanoki, the first sustainable sushi restaurant in New York, with his business partner, TJ Provenzano, and they join us in episode 129 to discuss the unique philosophy. And since then, their business did evolve into Rosella, which earned many accolades and was named one of the best new restaurants in America by Esquire magazine in 2021. James joined Rosella shortly after its opening. And if in September 2023, the team opened the Bar Miller, the eight-seat omakase-only sushi bar, where James leads the entire sushi bar with a pleasant energy and offers exciting culinary discoveries. And along with the expansion of the team's business, Jess has been deepening his knowledge and experience of serving sustainable sushi. So today we'll discuss the meaning and importance of sustainable sushi, the overlook of delicious and sustainable seafood you should try, challenges and advantages of running sustainable sushi restaurants, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We truly appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Jeff Miller and James Dumavi. Hello, Jeff. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So uh, we have a huge topic and huge questions to ask you. So uh, to get, no- get to know you first, uh, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Maybe Jack first. I grew up in Grass Valley, California, in the Sierra foothills in Northern California. Uh, I, I grew up eating whatever my mom made. The, the highlights for me tended to be uh, macaroni and cheese, um, and her lasagna. Uh, she, she was way, way ahead of, uh, the curve with avocado toast. She was making, uh, open faced avocado and cheese sandwiches for, for years in my childhood. So that's, that's at the top of the list. Mm, yeah. It cannot be more Californian than <laughs> that, I guess. So what about James? Yeah, I grew up in um, all over New Jersey, really. Um, and I actually had a pretty great culinary kind of childhood. My, my father is an avid 
cook. Uh, he owned like a small food trailer when I was growing up, that kind of thing. Um, and he was just constantly cooking and experimenting. Most of the time we had two dinners um, and always seafood was involved. So I've kind of had a like a burgeoning interest in seafood for my whole life, basically. Mm, like the idea of two dinners. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did you get into cooking and particularly sushi? And could you tell us、uh, where you trained yourself also? I got into cooking professionally in 2007 in Gainesville, Florida.、Uh, I, was,、uh, I, I moved to Florida to go to the University of Florida and、uh, needed a job. And I'd, I'd heard, I, 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 at this point in my life, I was just becoming obsessed with sushi as a, as a diner. Uh, and I had this idea that, that it would be fun to learn. And I, I took a chance and went into this restaurant in downtown Gainesville called Dragonfly.、Um, and they hired me, and I, I worked my way up there over a period of five years until I graduated. And that's, after, after that is when I moved to Texas.、Mm, and joined Uchiko under Tyson Cole. Exactly, right. yeah. Right. Yeah.、Um, well, it's funny that,、uh, listeners, if you want to have the details of how Jeff got a job without any previous sushi making experience professionally, you have to listen to 129. But basically, it was, it was very lucky. It, I, had no, I had no business getting that job. It was, it was really a product of a misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> right. So basically, the owner misunderstood that you were the person. I was supposed to come on then. You kind of took over the position. I don't know、yeah. what happened to that guy. <laughs> But,、yeah. all right. So, what about you, James? Yeah. So, I, I too started, well, I started in Texas at Uchi、um, out of culinary school.、Uh, but I started in the hot kitchen first. So,、uh, initially, I was kind of the pantry cook, I was a stodge, I worked my way up. But I always had my eyes on the sushi bar as kind of the, the end game and definitely admired what they did. And it seemed so exotic and different. And, and like, it seemed like something I could never be good at, honestly. And that made me want it even more. So within a year, I made my way up to, to kind of like the lowest station on the sushi bar. And by the third year, I was pretty much running the sushi bar、uh, over there. And that's when Uchiko opened. And not too long after that, Jeff and I met.、Um, And、uh, obviously, started our kind of a professional relationship and friendship. Right. Yeah. So, and I heard that you worked at the Asian Smokehouse, and you have a very、uh, huge experience, not, beyond, not just a Japanese sushi kitchen. So, that makes it even more interesting.、Uh, looking at what you do at the Bar Mila, too. So, okay, so、uh, this is a question for Jeff, I guess. So, you have been serving sustainable sushi for a long time at this point. And when and why did you decide to focus on serving sustainable sushi? It was, I guess it was a slow process, but the, the best way to summarize it, I think, is that it's more interesting. And it's not, it's not the sustainability of it that's more interesting, the sustainability element of what we do. To me, is a bit like、um, keeping, keeping the kitchen clean. Like, it's just it's something that's assumed. It's not really something that I feel like is, needs to be a focal point.、Um, what, what was really appealing to me was、um, because of where I'm from and, and where, where I've lived, making sushi using,、uh, using seafood from. Um, the nearest sources possible. And that, that was so difficult for me at first, in part because I didn't know what, I didn't know what seafood, like what fish even existed out here, with the exception of you know, the, the most obvious fish.、Um, but you, even, even after that, once I started to familiarize myself with、uh, the, the fish that I could get, I didn't know when they would be in season or the best ways to prepare them. So, For the first few years at Mayanoki, it was like kind of relearning sushi.、Um, mm. But it's the, the, the best part for me, the, 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 the goal, or essentially, I think what, what we've created is 
sushi that is uh, an a genuine or some some sort of authentic reflection of of who we are and where we are. Mm. Well, that's the very essence of sushi um, in the Japanese definition, right? Because it's local, sustainable. What's available goes into yeah. If sushi. if you if you and I, I I've only been to Japan a couple of times, but um, there's there's not there's not a ton if if you go into a, a, a restaurant there in in my experience there's a, a so much attention to detail in terms of like where each where every single ingredient is from and it's not like it's not like there's a bunch of imported ingredients there it's from different parts of Japan um, and and I think the if you go to any number of high-end sushi restaurants in in New York or in America, it's this, and and there are some great ones. I love them, but it, it's kind of an attempt to recreate the Japanese experience as opposed to taking that philosophy and applying it to something here. Right, right. Well, that's the that's ironically the essence that we just talked about: the local sustainable fish goes into your dinner table uh, is kind of because of the, you know, appreciation of Toyosu market fish, everybody ships far away from Japan and overnight, thank you, FedEx or whatever. And uh, in the end, you have to pay for it, which is not uh, the healthy way to democratize this sushi. This sushi was supposed to be eaten locally, sustainably. So yeah, there's something wrong with it. And I think you guys are trying to kind of um, change the whole uh, direction of the energy <laughs> was supposed to happen. So I really admire. Um, so what is sustainable seafood uh, by definition? What are your criteria for sustainable seafood at your restaurant, uh, Rosella and Bamura? I'll, I'll just give a, the, the most succinct answer I can. Um, we, we divide seafood into two categories, wild, caught, or, or farmed. Uh, if if they're farmed, what we look for is fish that are farmed typically um, in inland inland farms. Um, so, like the the gold standard there is called RAS, recirculating aquaculture systems, uh, so that there are no so basically so there's no damage to surrounding ecosystems or pollution of surrounding waters. Um, if if they're, and they're over the, over the course of of being open, we've we've served some fish from offshore farms. What we look for there is like very low density farms that are that are managed with uh, the goal of uh, keeping keeping the surrounding environment clean. Uh, when it comes to wild caught fish, uh, the catch method is important. Um, the the goal there being to catch what is uh, being targeted as opposed to just kind of catching fish indiscriminately. So the, the best option there is like single line caught fish where you're going out for one kind of fish and reeling it in. But there, there are other, there are other methods that, that are still effective for that. Um, and then of course the, the well-being of the species. So we're not going to, we're not going to serve fish from uh, endangered or threatened stocks. Mm. Right. I understand you guys follow the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch and also the NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration by the U.S. Department of Commerce. It's called NOAA, NOAA. And uh, I think, well, some, these are, you know, the two categories of wild uh, uh, coat farm um, is you have to maintain the healthy population. There's no decrease of it. And it's a balanced population of each species. And then also I think some people uh, argue uh, you have to consider the human rights experts uh, around the whole world to um, evaluate you know, labor conditions of people who work in the seafood industry, all those things. So I think it's a lot to cover and you have to research a lot because it's very difficult, right? It's not like a clear-cut um, factory-manufactured labeling thing. So do you look into it like as, as much as you can when you procure 
seafood? Oh, yeah. When Well, there there is one of the benefits of sourcing uh, all North American seafood is that the that third that third tier of um like labor labor rights or uh, the 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 human side of it is i i know what you're talking about but that doesn't really come into play for us um but yeah every every, every species gets analyzed through those criteria mm, right well that's another thing right it's very hard to get the real information transparency when it comes to especially seafood. And even if you get something expensive from Tsukiji, people say it's not <laughs> it's not the fish as label and you are informed as and you pay for a lot of money. So yeah, seafood is very tricky, but I think you're still trying to do something right in this uh, challenging environment. So I really appreciate what you do and hopefully you can uh, inspire other chefs and industry people too. So do you see any changes in the availability of sustainable seafood in America lately? The, the, the thing that I've noticed the most is the growing number of, um, of fish farms in, in the six or so years that I've been doing this. Um, the, the two that come to mind that are the best examples are the there's the steelhead trout farm in Hudson, New York, and um, the Hiramasa, the yellowtail amberjack farm in Maine. Those didn't exist when when I started, and um, those are two fish now that are just staples of the menu. They're uh, they're as good as it gets in terms of sustainability, and um, fantastic fish that are yeah now now just so, so important for what we do. So th- that that trend I see increasing the one one other advantage that we have sourcing sourcing sustainable seafood in in uh, the U.S. is easier than it than it probably is in a lot of other places because the the United States has some of if not the strictest regulations when it comes to um, when it comes to catching fish. So the the availability of sustainable seafood. If you're if you're getting fish from from the U.S. or from North America in general, is it, there's there's a ton of it out there, um, but I, I that's that I don't I don't really go I don't go grocery shopping, so I don't know what it looks like from from that. Like if you go to a grocery store, I don't know what that looks like. But this, I probably see things through kind of a, a skewed lens because. I, I exclusively look at North American seafood, so to me, it looks like almost everything is sustainable. But if you if you take a step back and uh, look at fish on a on a more macro level, that's definitely not the case. Mm, I I think it's going to take a long time. Like building a sustainable uh, seafood farm, it, it will cost a lot of money and also takes time and also has to be um, uh, inspected, I guess, to be. Um, recognized as sustainable so yeah it's a slow process but it's it's great exciting to to know that there are more sustainable fish farms uh in america and uh yeah so i think uh, jeff uh you've been talking because you are one of the the greatest experts in this field and you manage two restaurants and uh, I think you really, uh, I hope you can start lecturing around the world or uh, <laughs> to inspire people. I'll, I'll sign up for that lecture. <laughs> I would, right? I would, lo- I would love to. I, uh, right. I, I definitely didn't like, I, so I, I love, I love sushi. Like s- sushi is really what I love in restaurants. Um, and like the sustain, I didn't expect to be here in terms of, I didn't expect to be uh, a sustainable sushi chef or anything like that. I like I consider myself a sushi chef, um, but it's just this is just like the path that I found myself on. Mm-hmm. Well, you said earlier that you wanted to keep your sushi counter clean means uh, something you feel clean about uh, ethically and also taste wise, and Absolutely. you know the transparency. That's the cleanest of your sushi. 
and I know how it tastes like, so it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll dive into how Jeff and James serve sustainable sushi to their guests. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on Heritage Radio Network, HRN. I'm your host, Aki Fatiyama, and my guests today are Jeff Miller, the chef owner of Rosella and Bar Miller in East Village, New York, and James Jumapit, executive chef at Bar Miller. All right, so let's talk about your sustainable sushi restaurants. And uh, so let's see. So Rosella and Bar Miller, uh, which you opened with your longtime partner and beverage director, TJ Provenzano, in 2021 and 2023, respectively, and uh, both located in uh, East Village in New York, kind of adjacent locations. So first of all, what is the concept of Rosella and uh, what kind of menu do you offer at Rosella? Rosella is uh, a sushi restaurant kind of masquerading as a wine bar. It's it's meant to be, my, my vision for it, before we had ever opened opened it was uh, to be a, a very approachable, comfortable neighborhood sushi restaurant. The over the last ten or fifteen years or so, the, the proliferation of uh, omakase sushi has been fantastic. But also, I I just kind of missed being able to go out and have uh, a more affordable but high quality sushi meal. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I intended Rosella to be. And I think that's what it is. There's a lot of sushi and a lot of non-sushi items on the menu, but I think that the non-sushi stuff is kind of sushi adjacent. Mm, right. Okay. So kind of casual, approachable, um, place, but you serve sustainable sushi as well. Exactly. Right. Okay, so let's dig into your new restaurant, uh, Barmuller. So what is the concept of Barmuller and what kind of menu do you offer at Barmuller? I think Barmuller is um, an extension of Rosella. It very much comes from the same place spiritually and ideologically. Um, But I think both Jeff and I wanted to see what that concept looked like in omakase form because that's something that's near and dear to our hearts. At the same time, we wanted to be a little bit more experimental um, and and offer maybe um, some selections that wouldn't be uh, sustainable to offer to the kind of volume of guests we're, we're doing at Rosella. Um, and in that way, it's a fun opportunity to explore like lesser known cuts, uh, lesser known techniques, maybe techniques that take a little bit uh, more time to execute. Uh, and because of our lower guest count and more intimate dining room we we're able to explore that uh with relative ease mm, right so uh, you said omakase so um how do you describe omakase versus rosella's a la carte menu so that's a that's an interesting question and it's one that continues to evolve um jeff and i talk pretty much every morning and uh every night uh, about menus and menu changes um and for me it's not so much about a, a strict adherence to like a playbook um, or in any one playbook, but uh, kind of uh, a respect to the purity uh, of ingredient. When I think of omakase, there's certain dishes that stand out 
that we like to uh, definitely put on our menus here. One thing would be like a like a chawanmushi is one of my favorites, um, and that's something that we have on right now. But in general, we don't try to limit ourselves or handcuff ourselves to any one definition. I think um, our most important, or I, I can't speak for Jeff, but my main goal all the time is to create an experience that highlights our fish uh, in a way that doesn't obscure the flavor of, of the fish, but enhances it, um, but also showcases kind of our our unique, like our love of just culinary techniques in general. And, and that doesn't even limit, it's not limited to, to Japanese techniques. And I think it's it's a fun thing that we do things like at Rosella we have a fish sausage slider, which is basically a smash burger, um, and that's just not something that you experience all the time. And I think it's like a fun talking point for the guests. And I think it's a it's also additionally a great way to use up our trim and and to minimize waste. Um, and I think that's something that kind of like creatively drives us the ability to to utilize sustainability and the creative boundaries. That, that imposes on us to create kind of new and fun things that you might not have ever seen at a, at a restaurant like this before. Mm, right. Um, so, Nomakase means uh, leave it to the chefs. So, you are uh, fully in charge of uh, what you serve, and guests are just waiting for what you serve. Um, so, you can be creative or you can be traditional, but how do you, what do you call your style of sushi at Bamula, James? I would. I would call it progressive, progressive omakase. Um, I don't know if Jeff, I don't know how Jeff feels about it, but I, I definitely like. Just so for instance, a few hours ago, we were we were having like our morning talk about food, uh, as we do like most mornings, and we were talking about putting like a literal fish taco on the menu with a nixtamalized corn tortilla that's freshly made um, to order, which kind of calls upon my own culinary history and like the way that I learned to cook. Uh, spending a lot of years in Texas, I cooked a lot of Mexican food, and I have such a love of of masa. And I think there are so many corollaries between making a taco and making a piece of nigiri that are that are worth exploring. And it's kind of like those those links that excite me a lot of the time. And that's something that I think doesn't even factor into the equation of of this cuisine for for most people. That's not to say that we're coming up. We're like this is this isn't like a we're not reinventing the wheel here, but just just the idea of of being genuine to ourselves uh and kind of what what excites us i think is is very is going to be palatable for for most guests and um that's something that jeff continues to encourage and uh our results have been so far like so far so good we're we're both pretty like playful silly people and i think <laughs> i think i think at at our best when when it comes to our food, our 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 food, both at Barn Miller and Rosella, is clearly there's there's clearly like a strong technical uh, foundation, but we're also just having fun with it. I think Bar Barn Miller to me is a bit of a playground, um, and I, I think I, I've already seen the the menu over there evolve in just a few months. And I, I get pretty excited when I think about where it's going to be six months from now or a year from now. Um, and when James says that we're like talking about uh, nixtamalized anything, that just means that he's talking about that. I have like, I haven't a clue. <laughs> and that, that was when, when James was interested in coming out here to, to work here, that's something that I was so fired up about because I, I am, I've been in sushi for, uh, in in May it'll be 17 years, um, and I'm 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 just a sushi chef. And like James James's background is so much more than that. And boy, it's it's so much fun to to put our brains together. We we have probably too many ideas. I think the menu changes too often, uh, to be honest, because we're we really are just so we're like little kids. We're very, like really really excited about every morning, like what lies in store for that day. Mm, right. Well, that's the point of omakase, right? You can play with it. You don't have to print the menu and you don't have to follow it. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, for example, I, I had a fantastic dinner at Bamular and uh, one of the appetizers before even going to sushi, uh, one of them, uh, for example, that was dry-aged fluke with sweet soy, apple, granita, rice puff. 
and uh, it was flavored with olive oil. And uh, it was amazing. I never thought of having apple granita and uh, the fun rice, uh, rice puff on top. And uh, the olive oil, which is completely not in the context of Japanese, traditional Japanese sushi restaurants, but I was celebrating it. And that's what I think sushi probably needs from now on to be more global, accepted, enjoyed. And uh, why do you have to get stuck in a traditional style, right? So it was very traditional, definitely Japanese uh, because of the sweet soy and other flavors. But um, I really thought that was a very uh, exciting moment of sushi being abroad and uh, making, uh, I wouldn't say progress, but expansion and uh, it's developing uh, on its own, something else uh, outside of Japan. So, yeah, I, I really think that uh, your excitement, your creativity every day is going to keep going and then inspire Japanese traditional sushi as well. It really means so much to hear you say that. And I thank you for that. Well, I think I, I was not the only one in, with the you know, other guests in the eight seat counter. It, there was a celebration. You know, it's a very fun energy. I think you personally also creates a lot of fun energy with the, uh, the team members. And uh, it's such a pleasant mm-hmm. space. And funny, it was a former Mayonoki space, right? So it kind of returned to the original space and recreated something. It sounds a little corny. I don't think I expressed this to Jeff enough even that being back in that space really feels very special. And I know that It might not seem like it has a connection to the fact that Mayanoki started there, but once, like the from from day one, it immediately felt like it was a homecoming. Um, (laughs) Like I was coming home to something that I that wasn't my home, like coming home for the first time, and it just feels right in there, and like that makes it so much easier. Mm, Right. So that's called destiny, probably. (laughs) That space was still available. So. so in terms of like going back to the sustainability, uh, what's the advantage of offering a, an omakase menu at Pamela to inspire people about sustainable sushi? Um, when it comes to the fish that we're serving specifically, it's a, there's, there's a lot of specific advantages, but I think overall it's such an easy way to stand out. And I hope that like right now it's an easy way to stand out because there aren't, uh, it's hard to find uh, an omakase restaurant serving, not serving anything other than primarily Japanese fish. Um, I would, I would love for that to evolve and, and be able to go to some other restaurants doing something similar where we can have some, friendly competition and get some ideas and things like that. But yeah, for the time being, it's just that like both at, at Bar Miller and, and in Rosella, one guest after another in, in New York, there's so many experienced diners and we just have one guest after another saying something like I've, I've never had this as sushi or I would have never thought of this or what is this? What is this fish? Um, so that's, that to me is, is the biggest advantage. Uh, there, there's also in a, in a practical sense, getting fish from long Island, uh, versus getting fish from say Tokyo, that it's a very short distance to travel, which means we can get some fish in just incredible shape. Mm, Right. And also that's the nature again, uh, local fish that the (laughs) Edomae sushi means, um, People created the sushi culture uh, by cooking or well, making sushi uh, from the fish by Tokyo Edo Bay. So that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And um, I mean, I really discovered um, many items at the Bamila. Oh, wow, this is amazing. How, why didn't we have it before? Um, but it's a related question, though. So bluefin blue, blue, blue tuna is a symbolic fish that carries an image of unsustainable, but you serve bluefin tuna at Bamila sometimes. So why is that? So at, at Mayanoki, we never serve bluefin tuna, even though it by, by that time, the, um, the stocks of 
Western Atlantic bluefin, which is all that we serve here, um, those those stocks were in good shape. The the fishing restrictions over a period of decades had uh, resulted in um, health, healthy stocks, which which they are today. Mm. Uh, and it, it's because that it's because the that that the symbolic nature of bluefin being the most notoriously overfished fish that we didn't do it. But the more the more I thought about it, um, obviously, like bluefin tuna is an is an amazing fish, and it's a pleasure to serve it. But from a from an ethical place, or I don't know if that's even the right term, but um, if if we're limiting ourselves to fish that are as caught as locally as possible and from healthy stocks, why why wouldn't we serve it if it's just this sort of if it's just the idea of it, and if it's because a lot of people have incomplete understandings of what it is, like, that's not that's not a good reason. And then I I also thought like, how would I if I were to explain that decision to a bluefin tuna fisherman from Massachusetts? How could I make that make sense? Um, you know, these guys have had to follow the guidelines for for years for decades um and and it's resulted in what the those guidelines were put in place to achieve so i i, I actually felt like it would be I, I got to a point where it seemed like it would be just backwards not to mm, right so what i understand is you only uh serve a bluefin tuna which is in season and only a line caught, and the, the population would never be affected because it's it's in season, it's abundant, and then it's seasonal, and it's uh, there's no bycatch, and uh, the fishermen uh, know how to what to do with them. So um, yeah, I think if it's a you kind of you educate customers at deeper level, just because blue fin sounds like it's a bad thing, it's it's a uh, you need a better knowledge. Uh, deeper knowledge of what's what's good, what's not. That's why I think uh, the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium's uh, seafood watch list con- constantly get updated. Like a Chilean sea bass, one's totally uh, almost endangered. It sometimes goes up, and it's a moving target. And uh, I think we all sushi eaters have to be more aware of what's actually in- endangered. And just because it's served. Uh, at the sushi restaurant, we have to know what you are eating. It's almost like um, just responsibility. So I think if you by serving bluefin tuna, you are kind of presenting the opportunity to learn. Uh, let us think what to eat, what's right. So I thought it was a very cool thing to do. So, anyways, so thanks for the great answer. And uh, so, who's your customer at Bamila? And uh, what's the difference from Mozilla's customer? I it, it's we're still like coming to a place of understanding that, um, but I do feel like the, um, the the guest at Bar Miller is almost specifically I don't want to say a more a more sav- like a savvier diner, but oftentimes you get guests that have like exclusively go to omakase or go to maybe an omakase dinner a week, so. Um, which can be an added layer of pressure, but it also affords an opportunity to have some real conversations about our ethos, um, about the food. And also just like you get a guest in that um, really understands what you're trying to do a lot of the time. Like we've had guests in our four months that come back once a month and, and every time they're, they're able to give me feedback that refines my own understanding of the menu that I made even um, and the things that Jeff and I talk about which is always really exciting. Uh, also, the environment in Bar Miller is a little bit uh, quieter, a little bit more intimate. Um, at Rosella, it's a little bit of a party atmosphere uh, from top to bottom in the best way possible. Like I myself, am, I'm a huge fan of Rosella. I would say that the guests at Bar Miller is, is in for a more kind of like more one-on-one time and a little bit more of a, of a quiet and contemplative meal um, if that's what they want. Um, and they're in for a lot of conversation with me if that's what they want. Uh, so I would say that overall, so far, it's been 
kind of a, a true experience of meeting like really, really like well-rounded New York diners, uh, which for me is interesting coming from a place like Texas where you might not see somebody who goes to a, a Michelin star restaurant with regularity like ever, you know? Mm, right. Interesting, right? So because there's so many uh, sushi bars right now and then uh, the more expensive places, they tend to be just, I heard, uh, more kind of, uh, same kind of a wealthier population. But, um, yeah, I think it's great to see, great to hear uh, sushi eaters are becoming wider and probably uh, younger, and they really get to know real sushi. So sounds exciting. And your place, I mean, East Village is a very casual and approachable place, but um, like the Bamiwa's uh, ambience was kind of quiet. It's almost like your own friend's place. And <laughs> we went to James' place yeah. and have a party. <laughs> so it's quite party. Ideally, we want to, it's like you're entertaining a guest at your apartment. Even the playlist is designed to be like the kind of playlist that you would have at home cooking for friends. And like, that's, that's basically the vibe there. Um, and one that I think like the decor and, and the, um, the ceramics and everything kind of plays into as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but what are the biggest challenges of running sustainable seafood restaurants and how do you conquer these challenges? I think, so when, when we first met Akiko, I think I was in, in still in the midst of the most challenging part of that phase of my career. Uh, which was the the combination of sustainable local seafood and sushi. Um, there, there are there seems like a to be a, a never ending supply of books and guides of uh, Japanese sushi, Japanese sushi fish, uh, what fish to serve, what time of year, how to prepare each fish. Uh, what to look for um, that doesn't exist uh, it, for for North American fish. So the the biggest challenge by far was educating myself. And Mayanoki was just in like the I the best opportunity in the world to do that because I had the freedom to to order whatever I wanted and, and do with it, whatever I wanted. And, and so in that, in the, in the three ish years that I was there, I I kept track. And in the, in the three ish years that I was there, I served 91 unique species. Um, and part of that is because there, there's actually a lot more out there than I realized, but also I was looking at, I was looking at, uh, list after list of what fish was available. And any time that I would see something that I hadn't worked with before, I would order it um, so I could get to know it at least a little bit. Um, so, yeah, the, the biggest challenge was learning what to serve at what time of year and how to prepare it. Mm. So being a pioneer <laughs> sounds very hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, it was hard, but like what, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, it's, I feel so lucky to have had that opportunity. And I, I'm still, it's not like I'm not continuing that process, but it's, it's different now. I'm, I have a, a pretty sturdy foundation. I, I don't think that, I don't know. I, I feel very lucky to have, to have found myself in that position. Mm, well, as far as what I tasted, uh, it's been very successful. You chose the right ingredients <laughs> you prepared. So, yeah, I mean, so far, it's amazing. And uh, probably you can write a book about uh, American sushi fish. Oh, that's, you, you, that is uh, exactly my goal. Mm. I, so, I, part, partly because I want to do it. I do have uh, a writing background, but partly because I would if – anybody, if anybody beat me to it, I would be – I would, I would be grumpy for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. So, well, I look forward to your new book coming yeah. before too long. <laughs> right. So, um, but, you know, uh, we discussed the challenges, but there are so many high quality sushi restaurants in the U.S. and the market is very competitive. So 
what are the benefits of being a unique, sustainable sushi restaurant? I think that definitely, I mean, Jeff touched on this a little bit earlier, but people are not ready for what we have to, like when they come in there, they have a conception that probably isn't um, what we offer. And sometimes like that could be considered a challenge. But as we move forward, I realize that it, it's actually working in our favor. Uh, I think a good example of that would be uh, the way we serve something like bluefish, which is traditionally considered uh, like a throwaway fish and a fish that not only wouldn't be served like raw ever, but even cooked, a lot of people would kind of thumb their nose at. Um, it's an aggressive fish, but it's also like a fish that's sometimes considered a trash fish, which is a term that I that I hate a lot. Um, and it's one of our favorites, especially uh, like lightly dry aged and dressed simply. It's just a, like a beautiful expression of what we try to do in terms of being a sometimes disregarded fish that has like a wonderful kind of oily, delicious flavor that people just kind of don't serve that way. Um, and I think that moment happens many times in that meal. Mm. I think uh, it's a matter of time, right? In Japan, that kind of shiny fish, um, including a bluefish, it's a prized uh, species like a kohada in Japan. I think the price is really way more expensive than you can find here. I mean, the similar species because shiny fish that the mummy kind of like a fishy oil uh, that turns to mummy is the uh, classic taste Japanese people are looking for. So I think Jeff and I love uh, love like that. Like hikari mono is like our favorite. I mean, that's like the essence of sushi. And one of the one source of frustration for me is knowing that there there are fish like that out there, but if they get used at all, they tend to get used as bait. Uh, so I I have. I have hopes and dreams um, that at some point we're going to develop or re regain an appreciation for those fish mm. uh, because it's they're, they're a, a, the best example that I can think of is a fish called blue runner, which is abundant in the Southeast of the U S uh, it's, it's like a, a perfect cross between an Aji and Shima Aji. So just a little, little oily Jack. And the handful of times that I've been able to get them, they're they're just like the, they're, they are the best sushi fish in North America. Uh, but mostly, mostly they get used as bait for larger fish. I want to be the larger fish. <laughs> <to know. laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. So there is, uh, um, you know, in Ginza, there is uh, there are many expensive sushi restaurants. So, so Ginza is the highest um, uh, recognized sushi town in Japan even. But there's a uh, one tiny place that only serves shiny fish because the price is competitive under the train uh, rail station. And uh, to get the seat there, it's like, I think it's 10 seats, something like that. Uh, you need a reservation month in advance. So that's how people price uh, the bluefish in Japan, uh, the real sushi eaters. And, yeah, I think it's a matter of time. And uh, like a tuna, uh, Toro used to be thrown away. I think bluefish is going to be um, probably more expensive and a prized fish, I hope. And I, it's definitely the most sustainable way to consume cool. sushi. I, I think you're right. I think our our collective palate as a as a culture is, is evolving. Um, if you see the, the rise in popularity of just tinned fish, for example, that's something that, I, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago was not not highly regarded the way that it is now, not sought after the way that it is now. Um, so I think the, I think that there's a, there's a taste for it, just maybe not yet the, the knowledge and um, not the awareness of a demand for it that that causes fishermen to catch and bring in those those particular fish. Mm, well, that's a good point because other Western restaurants uh, famous like Prune to uh, I think um, some other restaurants uh, serve tinned fish just out of the, with the can itself. It does tend to be like sardine and really good oil 
um, that itself is tasty. People started to realize it. So, okay. So, um, so in, in order for us, especially for the future generation to keep enjoying fish, um, sushi fish, um, it's, it's important to think about sustainable sushi. So how do you think um, you can promote sustainable sushi in the U.S. and maybe the world? I think that like our, our main goal is to just make sure that our practices are, are on point and in keeping with like what our conscience, our moral conscience, our ethical goals, culin- goals as culinarians uh, tells us. Um, we don't try actively, and Jeff, I might be like speaking over here, but we don't actively try to kind of proselytize to, to people about sustainability. Um, we definitely... You know, if people have questions and, and uh, want to be educated, that's something we engage in. Um, but it's it's really more about incorporating it into your day-to-day life. And I think slowly uh, over time, I've noticed our guests are doing that. Um, a lot of people find us because we're an omakase restaurant, but equal amounts of number uh, of people find us because of our the core of our ethos is sustainability. Um, and I don't know, Jeff, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I think the the only thing I would add to that is and this is something that is a more general statement and not just, not just us, Farmilder and Rosella. Um, if, if the focus is on sustainability first, or rather if that's, if that's what you're advertising your product as, I think that it turns, it turns as many, if not more people off as it does attracts. Um, I think, I think the sustainability element can be built in, but the quality, you have to be serving something that is, that makes people want it. And, and I, in, in some ways, I think it's just a matter of time because the, what, what we're doing here, making the most of what's local and abundant, um, is not, it, it stands out in sushi, but it doesn't stand out in other cuisines. Um, and I, I think, I think we, we are in this country in the West still relatively early in our, in our growth, in our understanding of what sushi is. I think a, a lot of other cuisines are a lot more developed. Um, there's been established traditions in America and the West for longer. And so those where where we are today in in French or Italian or whatever else, uh, there are so many so many versions of it. So many so many chefs who worked for worked for the greats and then had people work for them and so on. So I think in in a number of years, the the idea of sushi as this thing that is very like very very and should be very japanese i think that's going to evolve um and kind of fade away Mm. not to say that there won't i i this is really like looking into the future i i don't doubt that there will still be so many traditional japanese sushi restaurants but i also think there are going to be many other versions Mm, right. So that's interesting, right? Because if you try to be sustainable and I try to eat sustainably, it's almost like let's eat healthy and nobody wants to do right, it. Right. And uh, But I, I really want to stress that um, Japanese people traditionally has never been depleted, uh, has depleted any species because it's local and seasonal. And if it's uh, something very special, you have to pay for it. And it's not the sushi culture. You just call in, there's a sushi delivery, and it's in seasonal. It's a local sushi restaurant. It's reasonable. That's how sustainably we've been eating in Japan. And uh, expensive sushi restaurants, like let's just get this bluefin from Oma or whatever. That's the thing that becomes very unsustainable. That's the misconception, and I think we have to correct it here. So I, th- I think the, the, easiest, the easiest way to fix that for, for me personally it, it was a it was a mental switch, but th- there's there is no one ingredient in the in the restaurant that has to be on the menu. Like if mm. if we learn 
if we learn tomorrow that that any number of fish are are no longer available, no longer meet our criteria, we'll switch to something else. Um, I, th- I think what, once once I got in the mindset of like let's just let's just see what's available and make the menu from that ra- rather than have an idea for what the menu should be and then go seek out the ingredients to complete it. Once I, once I just start, a, 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 it's more of a like ride the wave kind of mentality. And I, I, I think it's a lot more fun and it's, it, it does require you to think on your feet a lot more, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's an easy solution. Mm, right. And also easy on your wallet too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, so, do you see more sustainable seafood sushi restaurant in America or anywhere else than I don't know compared to uh, a couple of years ago? I the 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 biggest the, the first name that comes to mind is is Bamboo. They're based in Portland. I know that they've expanded. Um, but I haven't seen, I'm, I'm not going to say that there aren't more because maybe, maybe, maybe we just haven't seen them, but I, I haven't seen more The The one that I was the most excited to visit in, uh, New Haven in Connecticut, um, Mia's closed a few years ago. Um, mm. so I don't know, we might be moving backwards for the time being. Right. Okay. Well, we had a Hajime Sato uh, from the Sozai in Michigan. And uh, he said, if you can get just sustainable seafood in Michigan, you can do it anywhere. <laughs> so he, he's uh, really one of the very few people I knew other than you guys. So, yeah, hopefully uh, we can see more. Um, so well, I, great. I do, I do know at some, some points, I think it's supposed to be this year, um, uh, Keiji Nakazawa is opening his his restaurant in, in New York, in Midtown. But, um, and the, I, I highly doubt that sustainability is going to be a factor there at all. But I, I do think that based on like what his restaurants have looked like in the past, he'll be making the most of local seafood. And I think, mm. I think that has a chance to really be a, a, a game changer. Cause that's, he's, he's on the, the Mount Rushmore of sushi chefs. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's exciting. Sounds like there's a movement, a very healthy movement of eat local, sustainable, and delicious sushi. And uh, you guys are having a, such a <laughs> big fun at uh, Bamula. And uh, I really, really enjoyed every single dish. I could just really describe what I liked, but um, the timing is running out. So I will save it for maybe the future um, episode. But uh, so what are your plans and dreams? Well, so for me, I, I feel like it would it would be great speaking on the um, the topic of sustainable sushi to grow. And I, this is me like we've never Jeff and I have never talked about this, but it would be great to grow um, Rosella and this group into something that could be all over America um, and find a way to to kind of grow this in a, in, in a way where sustainable sushi can be a thing on, on both coasts. And if we were at the forefront of that, that would be wonderful. But I mean, just knowing that that kind of energy um, would be spreading um, would be something meaningful for me. And not just in terms of the food, but the quality of life for the staff. And I think that's something that's incredibly important for, for myself and for Jeff. Um, making sure that people are learning. Um, we have a, a lot of young uh, cooks coming up with us that I think are experiencing things that I didn't get to and maybe Jeff didn't get to as young cooks because there was a culture of of kind of you have to you have to earn the right to touch the fish and that might take years um, and I don't I have no bitterness about that and I think that it was a character building for me but I also think that it's it's a meaningful experience to teach somebody who might have only been cooking for two years how to to butcher a fish and cut fish because that's just another way where we are kind of spreading um, the gospel sounds like a, a little bit of a self-serious term, but of, of what we do of sustainable fish of, of the sushi that we're trying to promote. Um, and we're not, we try not to gatekeep any of that information. So we have a lot of young cooks that are learning things and getting their hands on ingredients and um, procedures that we probably didn't 
get to to learn for the first two or three years of, of cooking ourselves. Um, and to keep promoting that would mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, though, uh, if you guys have bigger, uh, ex- you know, kind of business um, purchasing power, I think fishermen might change their mindset. And uh, I heard when you expanded uh, from uh, Rosetta to Baumiller, uh actually TJ Provenzano, your partner, he said uh, you guys are able to buy the fish uh, as a whole rather than the pieces, right? So that's like a, there's a scale economy. And also if you keep expanding, uh, there is a demand and you inspire other sushi chefs probably to change the whole distribution system uh, mindset. So that's my dream, <laughs> taking over yours. Uh, I'm completely on board with everything you said. Yeah. So what about you, your dream, uh, Jeff? Definitely the book, which is, you know, it, it, it is, there's a version of it that's already in existence. So it's not like, that's not just a dream, but um, right, right now it's, this is actually coincidentally very in line with, with what James was saying. Right now, my focus uh, is fully on the, the restaurants here in the East Village and ref- refining, looking, looking at all the, the details and, and refining in, in so many different ways. A lot of that just comes down to... Um, sharing what's in my head with the people who work here uh this is is such a different it's such a different situation to be in than when when i was at my enoki and it was really just me um explaining things to to our to our guests there every night and making the decisions myself now there's i don't know there's something like something in the vicinity of 20 people who who work at at um rosella and bar miller and there's so much what 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 we do you know we what we do day to day i think works makes people happy and in in that we we feed them and we pour them drinks and we we're hitting the steps of service and that but um i i just want to keep doubling down on getting getting the ideas into helping the people who work here understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, um, it's, it sounds simple, but you know, as, as you hire one person after another and, and you're also just doing all of the work that goes into keeping these restaurants running, you, it doesn't happen automatically. You really have to go out of your way to, uh, to do that. And it's something that has been kind of, uh, you know, I, I was, it, it feels like a fairly recent transition for me from going to uh, employee to employer. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of growth that has come with that, but a lot that, that still remains to, to happen. Mm, right. So it's like uh, <laughs> multi-layers just added to your life because it's, it's not just running the business, right? The human um, like philosophy and everything combined, and uh, it's almost like a, I don't know, volcano <laughs> erupted in your life. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, it, it, what a fun volcano! But yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. What well, is so you you guys' life and um, being challenging, right? When making sustainable seafood um, more popular and uh, fun and delicious. So, what keeps you going? For me, it's the it's everything that makes it difficult is everything that makes it fun. I think when you've engaged in a practice long enough and, and gain a sort of kind of ease of, of, of work, nothing could be more of a joy than encountering a bunch of challenges and then coming up with creative solutions that also are delicious. Um, and the second thing would be finding new products sometimes that we didn't even know existed. For instance, I think it would, we'd be remiss not to mention that we get our rice from the Hudson Valley uh, which I think is really special because a lot of the time, all of our fish is really local, uh, New York even. And to serve a piece of, of, of New York fluke with New York fish is something I've never done in, in my career. Um, I think that's like kind of a magical experience for the guests as well to know that in some instances, 
their fish was was farmed right where their rice was grown, um, which is, I, I think, really special. And I, I'm trying to mention it every single time. Um, and I think a lot of people get that as well. But definitely those two things. I think just like being challenged every day and then for the most part, because we have such a good support system um, and because we have each other, it's it's just like most of the time, none of these challenges are anything but kind of like the, like the day's fun and, and like like the beginnings of like something cool. Um, and then the yeah, discovery of new products. Right. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jeff? It's, it's, it's really never a question that I've had to ask myself. Um, when, when I was in, I, so I, I went to school for journalism and I had written for newspapers for a few years, but once I got into Dragonfly, once I got into sushi, I, it, it was pretty clear pretty quickly that I wanted to stay on that path. And at some point I thought to myself, let's just, let's see how far I can take this. But not like, part, partly as a challenge to myself, but mostly because it's so much fun. Like I, I wake up and I, I have, since 2007, I wake up excited to come to work. Um, so it's, I mean, su- sushi itself, my love of sushi itself is, kind of the essence of what what keeps me going it's i've never i've never had to i've never had to wonder like why am i doing this mm, right so that's the famous term ikigai i guess <laughs> that's a hot word in japanese right now yeah great all right so uh well do keep me posted and i hope you can come back and uh you know discuss uh your dreams how it's progressing. So where can we find your updates online and on social media? Oh, the increasingly active Instagram <laughs> account, Bar Miller NYC. That's for, that's for Bar Miller. We don't regularly update our Instagram right now, but we will be doing that more and more <laughs> as 2024 progresses. <laughs> I, I, the one who is the, the least interested in all things social media, like I decided that I was going to take it upon myself to handle the Bar Miller Instagram account, and boy, does it look like it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I I describe it as calm, but yeah, it's very calm. Um, that's that's temporary. Um, and then Rosella Sushi is uh, Rosella's Instagram, and that's yeah, every everything that that we do is posted there. Okay. And also the website, uh, barmiller.com and rosellanyc.com. These are the, right. All right, great. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff and James, and uh, good luck. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to, to have been here once again. Yeah, so come back soon. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics or guests, please contact us at spanish at heritageradionetwork.org or kikwatema.com. Spanish is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is Liam Warner, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Spanish is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.